Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. X is for... X certificates. Again. So it was uh, the last episode, uh, the last podcast that we did for the A to Z of Davy Bowie featured the man who fell to earth, didn't mm, he, Bob? And uh, in this podcast, we're going to look at three less celebrated films by David Bowie. Nicely put there, Mark. Mm. I mean, you could say cult films, but let's get into it, shall we? So we shall start with Just a Gigolo, 1978 West German drama directed by David Hemmings and starring David Bowie, set in post-World War I Berlin. It also features Sidney Rome, Kim Novak and Marlena Dietrich in a final film role. The film was panned by critics and audiences, which led Bowie to quip famously that it was my 32 Elvis Presley movies rolled into one. I think that might have helped me decide to not go and see it. <laughs> Same uh, where, here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's, so there you go. I've not seen it. In fact, I've just saw recently the little clip of Bowie in a scene with Marlena Dietrich, but then you, you uh, enlightened me. I did, yes. Well, she wasn't actually there because she was a recluse at the time and living in Paris and they, she had to be coaxed out of retirement to do film these very short scenes and so you kind of see the back of her then you see Bowie and then vice versa and all that so you think they're stood there talking to each other and they're not they film them separately okay so the plot if there is one (laughs) a Prussian officer Davy Bowie returns home to Berlin following the end of the Great War unable to find employment elsewhere he works as a gigolo in a brothel run by Baroness Marlene Dietrich He's eventually killed in street fighting between Nazis and communists. Both sides claim his body, but the Nazis succeed in capturing it and bury him with honours, a hero to a cause he did not support. Roger Griffin's David Bowie, The Golden Years book goes into a bit more detail. This offbeat German melodrama directed by David Hemming stars David Bowie as Paul, a young Prussian war veteran who returns home to Berlin after World War I. After drifting from job to job, Paul eventually finds his niche, renting himself out as a dancer for war widows who long to forget their sadness. Kim Novak sizzles as a sad widow with German bombshell Maria Schell as Paul's mother and Sidney Rome as his old sweetheart turned cabaret singer. Marlene Dietrich makes a poignant cameo, it was a last film role, as an ageing baroness singing the German title song Schöner Gigolo, Armer Gigolo. In an interview from the time, Bowie said, I've tackled a subject I'm fascinated with, that of gigolos, male escorts and male hookers for women. I've known various individuals in those professions, yet I've found they're rather inscrutable and difficult to know. Therefore, the role was that much more of a challenge. 
As detailed in Nick Pegg's book, he added, it also allows me to display a more sensual, sexual side of myself that was totally lacking in The Man Who Fell to Earth, where I didn't even have any genitals. Fair point. Well, I, he seemed to be getting it on all right with Candy Clark at some point, so <laughs> there must have been something going on down there. <laughs> OK, fine. So around the time of its release, David Hemmings said that Just a Gigolo was intended to be highly ironic, tongue-in-cheek about the period. Marlena Dietrich was persuaded to come out of retirement to make the film, reportedly receiving $250,000 for two days shooting. Blimey. Uh, This film was about Berlin, shot in Berlin and financed partly by Berlin. However, none of the principal cast were from Berlin except for Marlene Dietrich, who was then living in self-imposed exile in Paris. Go figure. I mean, uh, yeah, and... uh, $250,000, I mean, you'd have to make a lot of money initially, and yeah. uh, it is a turkey. I mean, it's all well and oh. good saying it was highly ironic, but mm. that's what you're going to say, isn't it, if it's just a turkey? Absolutely, and surely you would not go and see a film that uh, you know, one of its stars says, look, don't go and see this. No. Uh, it was Bowie's first movie role after The Man Who Fell to Earth in 1976 and fitted his then-current interest in pre-war Berlin, pricked by meeting Christopher Isherwood, whose Goodbye to Berlin had inspired the musical Cabaret. The city, of course also been the recording location of Bowie's latest album, Heroes. The singer had variously claimed that he took the role as a favour to Hemmings, who at the time was also planning to produce a documentary of Bowie's 1978 concert tour, and because Marlene Dietrich was dangled in front of me. Oh, however, <laughs> however, not close enough, clearly. No. Actually, the two stars, as we've discussed, never met. Dietrich played her brief part in Paris, where she lived, with the result simply being cut into Bowie's scenes that were shot, along with the rest of the film, in Berlin. Talking about why he cast Bowie in the film, Hemmings said, David has a very special quality. The camera adores him. You can't shoot him and lessen his attractiveness. The nature of the character he played demanded that I shy away from this. So we took him into the worst shop in order to find the filthiest clothes and the real down and out look that was necessary for the character. And everything that David put on, it looked like he just created a new fashion. It was absolutely extraordinary and very funny. If I put on heavy wellies and old cords and a sweater and a cloth cap, I'd look like a gardener. David looked like he'd just been asked by Vogue to do a cover. A great <laughs> Well, it is. the funny thing is, uh, also, of course, staged, the film, yeah. never came out. Oh, I so, know. Which is oh, David Hemmings once again, yeah. I've mentioned. So, I mean, he's not got a great track record with David, has but, he? In fact, after Just a Gigolo, you wonder, really, with no offence meant to anybody, mm. why he would entrust following him around on tour to do a documentary. Well, yes, yes, uh, good point. Uh, the soundtrack of Just a Gigolo included jazz and cabaret standards performed by various acts, including the Pasadena Roof Orchestra, Manhattan Transfer and the Village People. As well as appearing on screen, Marlena Dietrich performed the song Just a Gigolo. Unlike his work in The Man Who Fell to Earth, Bowie did contribute a piece of music to the film. His so-called revolutionary song was co-written with musical director Jack Fishman and played by a band called The Rebels. It was released in Japan as a single, which later became something of a collector's item. Have you got that? No. The film opened in Berlin on the 16th of November 1978. It received poor reviews and was pulled from cinemas. Hemmings recut the picture for its UK premiere in Leicester Square on the 14th of February 1979, Valentine's Day, Mark, where, at a an ostensibly black tie affair, Bowie and his date, the actress Viv Lynn, wore kimonos and wooden clogs. <laughs> <laughs> Reviews were again negative. The Sunday Mirror called the film all show and no substance and considered Bowie completely miscast, whilst Time Out advised his readers to 
simply overlook it. You have to wonder if Bowie went there dressed in that clover just to kind of, like, just, almost as a disclaimer. Yeah, like, just to be contrary, I'm not a part of this. Yeah, the Morning Star wrote that Bowie exudes about as much warmth as a fridge. <laughs> the enemy was equally scathing, saying that Bowie's dramatic ambitions obviously far outweigh his abilities. Bowie's efforts throughout are comically inept. Oh, that is absolutely scathing. It seems probably, sadly, quite appropriate as well. Yeah. Like I say, that that one little scene that I that I had a look at not so long ago with, with Marlena Dietrich, yeah. it just wouldn't, doesn't it, come into it. No, it's so flat, isn't it? In an interview with the enemy in September 1980, Bowie was quoted as saying, the film was a cack, a real cack. Everybody who was involved in that film, when they meet each other now, they look away. <laughs> yes, it was one of those. The first year or so after I'd made the thing, I was furious, mainly with myself. I mean, oh God, I really should have known better. Listen, you were disappointed and you weren't even in it. Imagine how we felt. And then he says the 32 Elvis Presley movies rolled into one. Just a Gigolo, however, did warrant a DVD release in 2004 and I didn't buy it. Just about everything was released on DVD, <laughs> so that's a backhanded compliment, isn't it? Um, but uh, yeah, it's funny, you know, I, I always say the one thing that I'm good at is saying no. Uh, and it's, it's a kind of a skill that I've got uh, over the years. Oh, you, yeah. you get asked to do things and then you think, oh, yeah, all right. Then. And as, when, as you start getting closer, it's a black cloud and you're yeah. thinking, oh, I did it. And yeah, you can imagine Bowie just really beating himself up over it, thinking, why on oh, earth? Right. And he would have been buoyed, obviously, by uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth, which wasn't a massive success, but artistically it was. Yeah. And he was brilliant in it. Yeah. yeah. And so he probably just thought, yeah, I'll go for this. That's all right. Yeah, brilliant. No, we all make mistakes. We do. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. X is also for... Christiana F. Oh, okay. We're not quite entirely sure, are we, whether this is pronounced Christiana F or Christian X? Yeah, not entirely sure. So we'll just do them both. All right, okay. Just hedge our bets. And also the disclaimer can come into it once again. So we've not seen um, uh, Just a Gigolo. No. Neither of us have seen Christiane, Christiana F. No, we haven't. I've, well, I, do you know what? I did, I got it out, when it came out on video, I got it. Yes. And I did watch it. 
and I didn't last it, right. and I fast-forwarded through to Bowie's bits. Right. And it is, well, you'll find out what it's about now, but it is, it's not going to be an advert for no, it, this. It is, <laughs> it is a bleak story. Anyway, so... Christian F. is a 1981 German biographical drama film directed by Uli Adel that portrays the drug scene in West Berlin in the 1970s, based on the 1978 non-fiction book Via Kinder von Bahnhof zu, transcribed and edited from tape recordings by Kerr Hermann and Horst Reich. The film immediately acquired cult status, which it still has today, and features David Bowie as both himself and the soundtrack composer, which certainly gave the film a commercial boost. Okay, so the plot. 13-year-old Christiana Felsherino lives with her mother, little sister and pet cat in a small apartment in a multi-storey concrete social housing building in a dull neighbourhood in the outskirts of West Berlin. If that don't reel you in... What will? Mm. Um, it's just, it is harrowing, yeah. basically. She's sick of living there and has a passion for rock star David Bowie. She hears of Sound, a new nightclub in the city's centre. Although she's not old enough to get in, she dresses up in high heels and makeup and asks a school friend, Kessie, who hangs out there regularly, to take her. Kessie also provides her with pills. At the club, she meets a boy named Detlef, who's a little older, and in a clique where everybody experiments with various drugs. Christiana starts taking LSD in addition to abusing pills. After befriending a girl, named Babsy at a David Bowie concert she tries heroin for the first time as Christiana falls in love with Detlef she begins using heroin on a regular basis in order to be close to him gradually becoming more and more dependent on the drug until she is a full blown addict. After her 14th birthday Christiana stops going home and spends more and more time at her cohort's unkempt apartment. She's also drawn to Barnhaf Zoo, a large train and subway station notorious for the drug trafficking and prostitution that takes place in its underpasses and back alleys she also starts to prostitute herself, imitating Detlef, who sells sadomasochistic sex to male clients on a regular basis. After being discovered unconscious on the bathroom floor at home, Christiana tries to go cold turkey with Detlef, an excruciating experience for both of them. However, they relapse the moment they revisit Banhoff. To fuel her addiction, Christiana steals from home, sells all her possessions and sinks to abysmal levels. After Christiana and Detlef find their best friend and roommate Axel dead due to an overdose in the apartment, they run away, ending up in the apartment of one of Detlef's male clients. When Christiana walks in on the two having very loud intercourse, she had a breakdown and flees. She goes back to the station to find Babsy, only to discover, leaving there, that she's dead of an overdose at barely 14 years old. In despair over her friend's death and her inability to break free from heroin, Christiana tries to overdose as well. But the film abruptly breaks to an off-camera voiceover that says eventually Christiana recovered, but most of her cohorts either died or are still addicts. So there you go, it is pretty harrowing stuff. It is, let's look at the production of it. The film was shot with a low budget in 1980 and released in 1981, but set between 1975 and 1977 in West Berlin. It skips the beginning and end of the book and concentrates on the main story, starting when Christiana begins her nightlife in Berlin, aged around 13 years old, and stops rather abruptly after her suicide attempt by stating that she recovered. In real life, Christiana F. never fully recovered, nor did her troubles end with going to Hamburg to begin withdrawal, but the film focuses on the portrayal of addiction. Originally, the film was going to be directed by Roland Click, but after a long preparation, he was fired only two weeks before shooting after a fallout with Bernd Eichinger. 
Uli Edel came in to direct the film. Cinematography is bleak and dreary, depicting a dilapidated working-class Berlin with run-down structures and dirty, blighted backdrops. Mm, modern Berlin is very different, and most of the landmarks from the film, the station, the Bulov street stalls, the sound discotheque, have either been demolished or completely remodelled. The cast is composed mainly of first-time actors. Well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, most of whom were still in school at the time and have not pursued acting careers. And Natja Brunkhorst is the only cast member who can continued to act in German films and television, starting with 1982 Querel by Fassbinder, another exploitation film. Most of the extras at the railway station and at the sound club were actual junkies, prostitutes and lowlifes rounded up by producers just for the crowd scenes. In the scene where Christiana runs through the alleys of the station to find Babsy, the camera lingers on several terminal junkies leaning against the walls of the underpass. In a 2011 interview, Thomas Halstein, who plays Detlev and was still in school at the time, recalls how terrified he felt being surrounded by all those real-life addicts, but that he was able to successfully copy their behaviour for his character. It would be illegal to have minors act in the film's graphic shoot-up, nudity and sex scenes today. At that time, however, all the production needed was a written letter of consent from the parents to proceed with filming. Oh, really? Horrible, oh. isn't it? The Bowie concert featured in the film actually took place in New York City, with only some of the crew and cast attending, because at the time, Bowie was performing on Broadway several nights a week and couldn't shoot in Berlin. The mass concert scenes were actually from an ACDC gig in Germany. So the reception now, both the film and the book acquired cult status in Europe immediately after release, raising awareness of heroin addiction. The popularity of the film was greatly boosted by Davy Bowie's participation, as both himself portrayed giving a concert early in the film and as a main contributor to the soundtrack. Bowie's music from his albums made in Berlin during 1976 and 77 is heavily featured throughout the picture, and as he was at the very peak of his popularity during the late 70s and early 80s, his presence helped boost the film's commercial success. The film shocked European audiences. The heroin plague that swept Western Europe between the mid-70s and early 80s was not yet public knowledge, so the film's release was the first many knew of the epidemic. It then became widely known that heroin was killing a large number of European teenagers. Uh, the film depicted all the details of heroin addiction in very realistic detail, hustling and scoring, shooting up, the effects of heavy drug withdrawal and heavy drug usage, being too high to stay conscious and dropping onto the floor in a stupor, the scars caused by shooting up and the extreme weight loss due to not having much money left over to buy nutritious food, socialising in rundown neighbourhoods such as peripherals, train stations, back alleys, all too familiar to urban citizens uh, throughout Europe in those years. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. X is also for The Hunger. Yeah, an erotic horror film directed by Tony Scott, released in 1983, starring Catherine Deneuve, David Bowie and Susan Sarandon. The brother of Ridley, Tony Scott was directing his first feature film. He said later that Bowie could tell how nervous he was and tried to put me at ease right away and was very friendly. Have you seen this one, Bob? Uh, I have seen it, not in its entirety. I think I left it halfway through. <laughs> what about you? <laughs> Same. <laughs> Okay, so the plot, we need to read this again, don't we, because we don't know the full plot. It's basically a love triangle between a doctor who's doing research in sleep and the ageing process and a vampire couple. It's an adaptation of a 1981 novel by Whitley Stryber. Miriam Blaycock, Catherine Deneuve, is a vampire promising specially chosen humans eternal life as her vampire lovers. As the film begins, her companion is John Bowie, a talented cellist whom she married in 18th century France. So they go to a nightclub in New York, they meet a young couple who they bring home and feed upon, then dispose of the bodies in the basement of their townhouse, where they pose as a wealthy couple who teach classical music. 
John, Bowie, starts to get insomnia and ages years in only a few days. So, not content with eternal life, he now wants eternal youth. Ooh. He goes to see Dr. Sarah Roberts, Susan Sarandon, who specialises in the effects of rapid ageing in primates. Nothing can stop Bowie from ageing, though, so he begs Miriam to kill him and release him from his torture. But there's no way out. She carries him into the attic full of coffins and puts him inside one, where he's trapped in an eternal living death. If that makes sense. There's also a lesbian subplot going on, and in the end, Miriam gets her comeuppance when the mummified bodies of her past lovers emerge from their coffins and throw her over the balcony. Incidentally, a young Willem Dafoe appears um, uh, in a phone booth. <laughs> Not his greatest role. And a goth rocker's Bauhaus appear during the film's opening credits as a group performing at a nightclub where they play their single, Bella Lugosi's Dead. Yes. There's a bit more Bauhaus in the there world, is. isn't there? Uh, Bowie said that in order to make his voice suitably hoarse for when he aged so drastically in the movie, he stood on the George Washington Bridge every night and screamed all the punk songs he knew. Oh, great. That's what a brilliant line, isn't it? I didn't know that. I wonder no. what the songs were. I know, just thinking that. Oh, for a camera. Anyway, he also learned to play the cello for his music scenes. According to the scriptwriter Michael Thomas, most actors would have faked it, but not David. He worked like a bastard until he could play a decent bark cantata. In an interview with the Daily Beast in July 2014, Susan Sarandon revealed that she had an affair with Bowie whilst the two were working on the film. Apparently, Ridley Scott was set to direct the film, but decided to pass when he heard that David Bowie was in on the deal. Wow. Well, mate, would that be a result of just a alone? <laughs> Very possibly, yeah. Whoa. Uh, despite being set in New York, much of the filming was done in the UK. This has blown my mind, including Whitby in North Yorkshire Whoa. and Luton Who in Bedfordshire. So I'm, I'm going to watch this film because I go to Whitby quite a lot. Yeah, we used to go loads. Robin Hood's Bay and Whitby, yeah. absolutely love it. So I'm going to try and get some of the setting and uh, and find it and have a photograph taken there because I am a sad bastard. <laughs> uh, perhaps anticipating bad reviews, Bowie had reservations about the film. I must say, there's nothing that looks like it on the market, but I'm a bit worried that it's just perversely bloody at some points. <laughs> uh, and disappointingly, Bowie wasn't involved in the soundtrack. Howard Blake, who'd previously done Flash Gordon and Raymond Briggs the Snowman, another Bowie connection incidentally, was the musical director. As for the critics' reviews, Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times described the film as an agonisingly bad vampire movie. In Rolling Stone, Michael Schragau called it a minor horror movie with a major modern movie problem. Director Tony Scott developed so many ingenious ways to illustrate his premise that there's no time left to tell a story. Ouch. The critic Camille Pallier wrote in Sexual Persona, uh, 1990, that while The Hunger comes close to being a masterpiece of a classy genre of vampire film, it's ruined by horrendous errors, as when the regal Catherine Deneuve is made to crawl around on all fours, slavering over cut throats. <laughs> Uh, by that time, though, when the film came out, Bowie was already off doing his serious Moonlight tour. The Hunger was nominated for the Saturn Awards for Best Costume and Best Makeup, which probably <laughs> says a lot in itself. Damned by faint praise. Uh, in 1987, uh, a few years after he'd made it, Bowie admitted that I felt very uncomfortable with that role. All right, so uh, as mentioned there, so Bauhaus played Bella Lugosi's dead in the opening credits of that film, which is quite an iconic moment, certainly in their career, you know, it's in America. And I mean, you don't have to be the brain of Britain to work out that uh, Pete Murphy was obviously obsessed with Bowie. Yeah, he was. And they even covered Ziggy Stardust, didn't they? Yeah, they did, they did. Yeah. Uh, now then, so I was doing a piece, oh, roughly about a year ago on the making of Bella Lugosi's dead, which was fascinating in itself, because it was just like you know, done in like a matter of uh, hours. And all, it was a bit of a trial, but I... 
I eventually managed to speak to all four members of uh, Bauhaus who made it back in the day. Right. Uh, and they were talking about, and I, I wanted to ask them about their experiences on the Hunger, and just whether they hung out with Bowie, whether they actually met him at all. And uh, a few of them just came up with uh, surprising um, anecdotes about that, and which really charmed me. All right, so uh, beginning with Daniel Ash, for example, and I did ask him, so how did you end up in The Hunger? He said, well, the, the producer or director had heard about the band and they came to a gig. Then they were like, OK, well, we don't want to use the original song, so they wanted us to do a live version of Bella Lugosi's Dead. We went into the studio and recorded it. But if I remember correctly, another live version was actually used. I remember we were in the studio with this guy and he was directing us. OK, more trill! He was talking in classical music terms and we were like, what the fuck is trill? I don't know what it is. It was that little dingly dangly bit on the guitar that comes in just before the vocals. That's what he wanted. But it was hilarious at the time because we had this posh, classically trained guy with us four Herberts. Right. Then you said, uh, did you hang out with David Bowie much? And Daniel Ash says, yeah, me and Pete were really huge Bowie fans. At 7.30 in the morning, we're doing a dress rehearsal, all bleary-eyed, and I've got my leather pants on and fucking shiny black shoes. And I hear this voice behind me going oi you've got my shoes on <laughs> i turn around and it's fucking bowie he's standing right next to me i was totally starstruck my mouth dried up and i just went Ugh. i'm looking at bowie and he's just smiling laughing at me you've got my shoes on because we had the same shoes what struck me about that is that he would have been 35 then i think that was in 1982 and his skin was like porcelain considering all the drugs that he'd taken and the fags that he'd smoked what struck me more than anything was how healthy he looked and his skin was totally flawless and he didn't have any makeup on or anything. So yeah, we were all starstruck completely. For Pete and myself, he was a shit. For us, it was him, Roxy Music, T-Rex, Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground. So uh, this is the experience of Daniel J of uh, Bauhaus. Uh, asked him, how do you end up appearing in The Hunger? So well, the director, Tony Scott, saw us performing Bella Lugosi's Dead on TV on Riverside. So uh, Mr. Scott Soros asked Bowie about the idea of having Bauhaus in the film and Bowie apparently said, yeah, Bauhaus are cool, I like it. Most of the music in that film is classical music, but I think Bella Lugosi's Dead worked perfectly for that scene, the vampiric seduction scene. And so, inevitably, I said, well, did you meet Bowie at all? And uh, he said, yes, he was very gracious and personable. He was great. Talk about charisma. He had extraordinary charisma. You just wanted to be around him all the time. It was almost overwhelming meeting him. Peter was a bit overwhelmed to the degree that he hid. But I had a nice encounter with him when they were setting up the shoot to do the main scene. They had a jukebox outside Bowie's dressing room, an old 50s Wurlitzer. I was just out there because it was where our little area was, just adjacent to Bowie's dressing room. He continued, I was looking through the selections, which were all great 50s and 60s and 70s ones, and I became aware of this looming presence behind me, then this voice. Do you mind if I pick one? So he punched in the number and played Groovin' with Mr Blow by Mr Blow from 1970. Then he starts dancing in front of me. He's wearing that suit that he wears in the film, grinning, doing the full-on dance with his arms up in the air. It was so surreal and there was just me out there. Then I got cheeky and said, it reminds me of something, this track. He was still dancing. He went, oh, what's that then? And I said, it's from one of yours, I flow. A new career in a new town. And with that, he put his finger on his lips, winked, grinned and carried on dancing. He cribbed that harmonica part for a new career in a new town from that song. So it was confirmation for me. I'm breaking the pack now, but I think he'd be okay with it. <laughs> Great. And I went back and listened to that straight after he told me that. And uh, finally, you had a chat with Kevin Haskins, didn't you? Mm. Who's a drummer. And you said it must have been a huge thrill appearing alongside David Bowie in that film. 
Absolutely, yeah, he said. It was very exciting. I had two great moments. All the extras were regulars at the club and everybody in that building was into Bowie, so we were all kind of following him from a distance. He arrived in these designer green army fatigues and looked much smaller than I thought he'd be, then went off and got changed into his suit. He went into this side room off the main club area and there was an old jukebox there. He just happened to have more or less every song that he'd covered on pinups on this jukebox and he put one of the songs on and gestured for us all to come close. Sit down, sit down, he said. There were about 30 of us sitting around and for the next hour he was putting on these songs by The Who and The Yardbirds and telling us stories about when he went to see them at Eel Pie and the Marquee Club and how they influenced him. It was amazing. He was this super lovely, down-to-earth, very charming guy. What a great story that is, you know, They're just holding court. Then the second occasion, uh, but Tech Kevin Haskins said, uh, then another time I was standing by this alcove against the wall where I couldn't see anything around me. I was looking for a light and David's assistant, Coco Schwab, was there. I asked if she had a light and she said, oh no, but I think David does. I didn't know, but he was directly around the other side of this alcove. So he came round with a lighter. And I was so nervous while he was trying to light my cigarette. My hand was shaking so much. It was moving so much. It took him about 20 seconds to light it. Right. Well, yeah, people were like that when they met David Bowie, I know. Um, Okay, so there you go. That was X4X Certificate Part 2. So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie. But once again, before you go... If you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Right. So now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right. Mark, Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Material such as interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends, there'll be regular film Bowie quizzes, Bowie guitar tutorials, unreleased archive written material, competitions, and perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Nock, and Jason Reed visiting various Bowie places of interest, and much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, all one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowiecheapthings.com. Book early. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.